0: And now,
1: please welcome the charming, insightful, witty, rather brilliant, debonair, influential, well-heeled yet down-to-earth, talented, surprisingly modest, handsome and refined exemplar of unflappable character, Mr. Buffett.
2: Who were you expecting? My junior partner? For those of you who don't know, uh, I'm the distant cousin Jimmy Buffett. This would be a good day to rob a bank in Omaha. Everybody's here, you know, so. uh, I couldn't be around for the uh, game with LeBron James. Uh, I was busy working on my wardrobe for this uh, surprise appearance. And uh, this is my first time in the Quest Center, so uh, I feel very at home in uh, large spaces like this. It's great to be back in Omaha. <laughs> That's the good news. The disturbing news is, uh, as a uh, longtime Berkshire Hathaway stockholder and shareholder, uh, the, uh, the big question is, you know, those guys are getting up in age, you know, Charlie and Warren. And, uh, who are they going to leave it to? Well, <laughs> I got news for you. We, uh, we did a uh, genetic test, Warren and I did. You won't see that in your program or in the shareholder's report, and uh, somewhere back about 6,000 years ago in some ancient village in Scandinavia. Uh, They were trading Buffett jeans, and uh, I got the talent, he got the business. So uh, later on in life, after Doris introduced us, I don't know, 30 years ago, I started figuring out, well, I better get that business thing going as well. So uh, uh, since blood is thicker than water, I am your new chairman. So uh, I hope you like that. Don't run out to sell. I'm keeping mine. So, on the way out here on the plane, I figured uh, it was an interesting day. If you read the New York Times business section yesterday, there was a lot going on. So, uh, I thought I would, uh, uh, this song has done very well for me. So, I thought I would bring this uh, for my first appearance in Omaha at the uh, Quest Center. I would uh, rewrite uh, a little Margaritaville with a little Berkshire. Well, actually, we're wasting away in Berkshire Hathawayville today. I've never sung this early in the morning except on the Today Show, so you're not paying, so don't worry about it. So Don't worry, I'm a semi-professional, this is okay. I will be looking at these notes, as you can tell Warren gave me a really big budget for a teleprompter here. <laughs> All right, so you can sing along, but you will not know. You'll know a few of the words to these songs, but then uh, I'll try to do this slowly, and I have my bifocal, so I think we're in good shape here. So uh, we'll start the morning off with a little hymn. (laughs) Nibbling on sponge cake and Omaha beef steak. Watching you, stockholders buying the rounds. The quest center's rocking. The press is all flocking. There isn't a doubt Warren's big in this town. Wasting away in Berkshire, have the way of ill. Searching for a mind lost box of seas some people claim that Charlie Munger's to blame and you know Rupert Murdoch is peeved from world books to sopas jet planes diamonds and copas tools books and bureaus Let's not forget your rose oh I made a mistake here, all right, hang on You won't pay for that, okay Are you going anywhere? We'll start again right. From, uh-huh, from oh, let me get these bifocals off here Let's see. From world books to sofas uh, Blitzes and loafers <laughs> Jet planes, diamonds, and underwear cover the floor. It was the fruit of the loom that got me. Toolbooks and bureaus. Let's don't forget euros. Make all those, oh, oh this is a good line. I gotta, make all those hedge funders want to go and buy stores. Wasting away again in Berkshire Hathawayville. for some good companies to buy some people claim privatizations to blame but we know this holding company's on fire so who was the wizard who thought up the lizard to sell car insurance to humans while making some jokes. Projects will surmount, but I still want that discount. Can someone show me where they're sitting those rich Geico folks? Wasting away again in Berkshire Hathawayville. Searching for my lost shaker's soul. And some people claim that Doris Buffett's to blame. But I know this is all Warren's fault. And some people claim that Ukulele's to blame. If there's a God, He'll turn that thing into salt. So you thought I was kidding about that running the company stuff, didn't you? So uh, I was. (laughs) That was a big relief there. So uh, with with a great bit of pride and admiration, please welcome my junior partners, Warren and Charlie. (laughs)
0: Separated at birth. Separated at birth.
3: <laughs> Thanks, Jimmy. All
0: right. Okay. I actually had asked Charlie to do that number. That, uh, <laughs> got a lot of people to thank, starting off with Jimmy. He's been wonderful. We hit him out, came in last night, kind of late, and we be sure it was a surprise. We... We stashed him away over at the Hilton, and I just want to say thanks to him. We both got the commercial gene, but unfortunately, he got the singing gene. and I got this voice you're hearing. (laughs) We, uh, the movie, as we mentioned, we get a lot of help from a lot of people. They all do it, just for the fun of it. I particularly want to thank Andy Hayward of DEC, who did that. Cartoon. He's done them now for a number of years. They come back here to get my voice recorded, and they get Bill's voice and Charlie's voice. They do it all themselves just to participate in the movie. Uh, Andy and I. Are, I'm working with Andy on a cartoon series that'll be out pretty soon, which we're aiming toward younger people to try and work a little financial education into uh, into a good time on Saturday morning. Kids and. We'll see how that all comes out, but Andy's wonderful to work with at them. My daughter Suze puts that movie together. It's a lot of work and it's a labor of love. She does a terrific job, and I just want to thank her for as usual. Thank you. And finally, I want to particularly thank the, the, the uh the grand empresario of this whole affair is Kelly Brose. And Kelly uh, puts this all together, the exhibition hall. I just turn it over to her, I forget about it, and Charlie and I just show up on, on Saturday morning. And Kelly is having her 50th birthday tomorrow. So Kelly, would you stand up and take a bow, please? Yeah. Happy birthday to you happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Kelly. Happy birthday to you. For Kelly. Uh Now, today, we're going to follow the usual format. We have a number of uh, microphones placed around this room, and we have overflow rooms. We will go from one uh, station to the other, keep going until about noon or thereabouts, and then we'll break for 30 or 45 minutes for lunch. We'll come back here, and we will uh, then go until about three o'clock, continuing the same routine, Uh, We don't pre-screen the questions or the questioners. It's whoever got in line first for the microphones. Uh, At 3, we will take a break for a few minutes. We will reconvene at 3.15 for the official business meeting. Uh, uh, We have an item of business. Normally, we take care of business in about five minutes, re-elect the directors. Uh, But today, we have an item on the proxy relative to our holdings of PetroChina. Uh, We were not required to put that on the ballot. The SEC told us we didn't have to. But we really thought it would be a good idea to do it, so that uh, all of you that are interested uh, can hear about our reasoning and the reasoning of the people who disagree with us. We'll give them plenty of time to uh, uh, tell you why they think we're wrong, and and, uh, we'll respond. And uh, I hope anybody that's interested at all in the subject, I hope you stay right until 4 o'clock. Uh, when we will adjourn, because Charlie and I are then going to uh, greet perhaps as many as 600 uh, shareholders who have come from outside of North America. We have a record number. Uh, I think we have 100 or so from Australia, and we have close to that number from South Africa, and we have have shareholders from all over the world. So we feel if they come all the way to Omaha, Charlie and I at least like to shake their hands, and we have that from about four to six o'clock. Uh, and then we'll be doing some other things this evening. But that's, that is the drill uh, for this meeting. Um, we won't elect the directors until uh, uh, the, the regular meeting, which uh, commences at 3.15. But uh, I would like to introduce them at this time. And uh, we have a few special announcements in that connection. But we start off... This is Charlie. This fellow's been making all the noise over here. Uh, he's, a, he, he's quite hyperkinetic, but uh, uh, he seems, I, I think he's on his medicine. Uh, Charlie, Charlie, incidentally, can hear quite well, and I can see, so we work together. I have a little, but, uh, I thought I was doing pretty well when I remembered his name, actually. But uh, our, our combined ages are 159 for those who've, who can't work with big numbers. Uh, so Charlie, and then we have and if you'll stand as I read your name, Howard Buffett, Bill Gates, <laughs> Sandy Godisman, Charlotte Guyman, a former Omaha Don Keo Tom Murphy, Ron Olson, and a lifetime Omaha and Walter Scott. Now in addition, we have with us a director whose family has been involved with Berkshire Hathaway and its predecessor companies, uh, for over a hundred years, his father played a very key role in Ber- in Buffett partnership obtaining control of Berkshire Hathaway in 1965. He was supportive in every possible way as his father and now his son. Uh, and Kim Chase has been on our board for a great number of years. He's been, a, just like his father before him, he's been a wonderful director. He's been a great friend. He will be leaving the board this year. But Kim is here with his family. And Kim and the family, if you would stand up, I'd like the shareholders to recognize you. (laughs) And then finally, we will have a new director get elected. And I've got the votes in my pocket, so there's no question about it. Uh, and that is uh, Sue Decker. And Sue, if you will please stand. Uh, just one or two items of business The uh, before we start the questioning. Um, we did report our earnings uh, yesterday after the close, and uh, I can't see the Are they up on the monitor? uh, uh, It was a a good first quarter. We had a good year last year. The insurance earnings are going to go down. There's no question about that. How much they go down depends on Mother Nature and a few other factors. But it's been an extraordinary period for insurance. I mean, nothing bad happened uh, last year, and the same was true in the first quarter. Uh, As you might expect, that that favorable experience has caused people to lower prices in some areas quite dramatically, and uh, the nature of insurance, if you write a one-year contract, say six months ago, you are still getting premium at the old rate if you write a one-year policy for another six months. So there's a lag effect when things are getting either better or worse. And the lag effect from this point forward we will — our our insurance results uh, will show the effect of lower prices. They will probably show — certainly we had the most benign hurricane season imaginable last year. We have less hurricane exposure that we've written this year. But nevertheless, as natural catastrophes occur, we we uh, we will be paying out lots of money if and when they occur. It couldn't get any better than it was last year from our standpoint. So things in the insurance world, our insurance earnings, underwriting earnings, are bound to decrease. Now what we really hope over time is more or less to break even on on the underwriting of insurance. So when you see a significant profit like last year or underwriting profit this year, uh, just look at that as kind of the uh, the good side of what will later be an offset to it in the way of an underwriting loss. But if we break even in insurance on underwriting, we do very, very well because we, we generate lots of float and we earn money on that float and our float is at an all-time high. So uh, this is really the frosting on the cake when we have an underwriting profit and it's not to be expected to necessarily, well, it won't occur year after year. Over, ever since we've been in the insurance business, about half the years we've made money underwriting and half we haven't. I think our mix of business now is such that we'll even maybe do a touch better than that in the future, but we won't do anything like what we did in, in, in the last uh, year and in the first quarter of this year. Uh, there's one unusual item in our balance sheet that you should be aware of. At March 31st, you'll see our receivables went up by about $7 billion. Uh, that was because of the Equitas transaction I described in the annual report. Uh, on March 31st, the deal basically was closed at the end of the quarter. So we had a receivable of $7 billion, and then a couple of days later, we were given $7 billion. Of so that receivable very quickly turned into liquid assets cash, and, and we sold all the securities we got. Uh, so, we had $7 billion transferred from receivables to cash very early in April. So, um, other than that, uh, most of our non-insurance businesses did fine. The residential construction-related businesses uh, are getting hit, in some cases getting hit very hard, in some cases getting just, uh, but still reflecting decreases uh, in their business. And uh, my, my guess is that that continues. Perhaps for quite a while, so you will see lower earnings uh, coming from the companies that are related to residential construction, uh, such as Shaw, Johns-Manville, Acme Brick, and that th- that group. But overall, compared to our, compared to the companies they compete with, our managers continue to do an absolutely sensational job. We have the greatest group of managers, and for that matter, we've got the greatest group of stockholders of, of any company I know of in the world, and. Uh, uh, Charlie and I are very grateful. You, you saw in the movie, Charlie and I going over there to give the fellows in Israel a lot of advice on how to run their operation better. <laughs> and, uh, Charlie, might want to, you might want to comment on ISCAR. That, uh...
3: Well, that was a great experience, and ISCAR is a very great company. I have never seen anything as automated as that ISCAR operation. I think they regarded it as a dis- disgrace if any human hand has to do anything.
0: We uh, We bought it without looking at it, uh, but after we looked at it, we really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who won't be around for the uh, 315, and I hope everybody that's interested sticks around for that. It'll be an interesting discussion. But we do have a preliminary vote. Again, I can't see a, the vote up there. At, uh, Mark, is the vote up there? Can me. Unable to hear anything there, but I assume it. The, uh, basically, uh, I, ca- I can't see it from here, but it's uh, about 2 percent are in favor of the resolution and about 98 percent opposed. And that was true of both the A and the B stock. Uh, so there really wasn't any great difference in the uh, in the way people voted on the proposal uh, and even if you leave out my personal vote, which was against uh, it's about a twenty five to one uh, margin that uh, uh, voted in opposition to it and anybody that wishes to vote in person or to change their vote, be sure and stay for the meeting at three fifteen and I think you'll find the discussion very interesting if you care to stay uh, let's uh Got a map here. Here we are. Uh, we, will start, we will start with uh, area, area 1, which I think is over
4: here. And we'll, there we are. And we have a questioner. Good morning, Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger. My name is Kevin Truett from Chicago, Illinois. Thank you both for, again, hosting this Woodstock for Capitalists, for your shareholders and cap- fellow capitalists. I have two questions. My first question is for both Mr. Buffer and Ms. DeMonger.
0: I don't like to interrupt you, but we're only letting everybody do one question. So pick whichever one you
4: you feel the strongest about getting an answer for, please. Okay. First, given the ocean of equity money that is out there, private equity money, that is out there today chasing deals and with the quality of the deals continually diminishing as the quantity of good deals continues to go down. And given the fact that these private equity funds are getting their equity portion of the money from the pension funds and college endowments and using very high levels of borrowed money from the banks, this has the look, feel and smell of a bubble that is about to burst and is likely to end badly for many of the deal makers and the investors. What events, in your opinion, could cause this bubble to burst and how do you think this is likely to all end? Well, as you were reading off that list,
0: we are competing with those people, so I started to cry as you. You explain the difficulty we have in finding things to buy. Uh, the The nature of the private equity uh, activity is such that it really isn't a bubble that bursts, because if you're running a large private equity fund and you lock up $20 billion and for five or longer years and you buy businesses which are not priced daily, as a practical matter, uh, the plug will not even if you do a poor job it's going to take many years before the the uh, score is put up on the scoreboard and it takes many years in most cases for people to get out of the private equity fund even if they uh, they wish to earlier so it, it it does not it's not like a lot of leverage can uh, lead to uh in marketable securities or something there and uh the investors can't leave and, and a scorecard is lacking for a long time. What will slow down the activity, or what could slow down the activity, is if yields on, on junk bonds uh, became much higher than the yields on on high-grade bonds. Right now, the spread between yields on junk bonds and high-grade bonds is down to a very low level, and history has shown that periodically that spread widens quite dramatically. That will slow down the deals, but it won't cause the investors to get their money back. Uh, There's one other aspect, of course, of of this frenzied activity, you might say, in in, in private equity, is that if you have a $20 billion fund and you're getting a 2% fee on it or $400 million a year, which seems like chump change to those that are managing them, but sounds like real money in Omaha. If you're getting $400 million a year from that $20 billion fund, you can't start another fund with any, with a straight face until you get that money pretty well invested. It's very hard to go back to your investors and say, well, I've got $18 billion uninvested, and I'd like you to start, give me money for another fund. So there's a great compulsion to invest very quickly because it's the way to get another fund and another, another bunch of fees coming in. And uh, those are not competitors for businesses that Charlie and I are going to be particularly effective in 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 competing with i mean they they uh, we are going to own anything we buy forever. Uh, the math has to make sense to us we're not given to optimistic assumptions, and we don't get paid based on activity um, but i I think it will be quite some time before. It's likely to be quite some time before disillusionment sets in and the money can, quits flowing to these people that are uh, promoting these. And uh, uh, whether they can continue to make deals will depend on whether people will give them lots of financing at at what I would regard as quite low rates. Charlie?
3: Yeah, it can continue to go on a long time after you're in a state of total revulsion.
0: The voice of optimism has spoken. Uh, we'll go on to two. And I should have mentioned at the start, we, we really only take one question uh, per person because there are a lot of people waiting. And, and some people get very talented about rolling four or five into one. But we get, we've gotten more talented about unraveling them. So try to keep it to one. Uh, area two, please. Greetings to all of you from the
5: Midwest of Europe from the city of Bonn in Germany. My name is Norman Rentrop. I'm a shareholder in Berkshire since 1992, as well as a shareholder in Wesco and cologne Re. I'm a great admirer of both of you and want to thank you again for sharing your wisdom with us and for continuing to stay humble by managing Berkshire for the benefit of all of us without any big 2 and 20% fees without stock option plans.
0: Be careful, you're giving Charlie ideas here. <laughs> and I want to
5: applaud you in setting another great example by donating most of your wealth to charity and for donating donating it in a very intelligent and selfless, that is not your name on the foundation way. Now, I am a little disturbed by remarks from another great investor, from John Templeton, who continues to say that you are narrow-sighted in not investing more overseas. You do focus on the US, with relatively little so far internationally. You explained that it does not really matter whether a company is headquartered in the US or London or Munich or Paris, and that you would pay almost as high an amount for such companies as for similar US companies. You were audacious to invest your petty cash in South Korean stocks. Coca-Cola went truly global many years ago, whereas Hershey's missed the opportunity to go global, leaving the chocolate globalization to Swiss base Lind and Sprüngli. Now, what would it take you to go truly global with Berkshire by investing
0: internationally in a big way? Well, that's a very good question and uh, I would say that I know I probably bought my first stock outside the United States at least 50 years ago. It It is not that we have not looked in the marketable securities field uh, beyond this country. And we've made some investments there. Uh, it really wouldn't make any difference to us if Coca-Cola was based in Amsterdam or Munich or Atlanta as long as they had the business they had. Uh, so we're we're very involved in international business. But the, the, the hard fact is that in terms of buying entire businesses, we were simply not on the radar screen to the same extent to close to the same extent outside the United States as we came, became in the United States. When we started in the United States, really nobody knew anything about Berkshire either, so we had, we had a selling job to do here. But we did not do the selling job, or I did not do the selling job well abroad. Uh, and thanks to Eitan uh, Wertheimer, he, he found us, and I think has contributed it in a very significant way to getting us better known we have no bias against against buying either marketable securities or entire businesses outside the United States uh, Eitan is even planning a little uh, uh, procedure uh, to get us even better known get Berkshire even better known outside the United States and I'm going to participate uh, in that with him uh, within the next uh, six or eight months uh, but it we can be we can be uh, very validly criticized for not making a better, better effort to to get on that radar screen. I think I think we're I think it's improving. Uh, we own a number of of uh, non-U.S. securities. We, we we own stock in uh, just stock marketable securities. We own we own two that are based in Germany, and we own others. As it's, it's been pointed out we own, for example, four percent of posco Pasco, which is based in in uh, South Korea, that's over a billion dollar investment at, at current market, and we have—I can think of a half a dozen or so marketable securities investments outside the United States. We don't have to report those in the 13F. I believe I'm right on this uh, mark. We don't. We they, uh, so they don't necessarily get picked up the same way as do our domestic investments by reports we make. Uh, to the SEC. Um, there's a problem, for example, in Germany, we have to report our holdings in Germany if our holdings exceed 3%. Well, if you're talking about a company with $10 billion of market value, that means at $300 million, we have to tell the world what we're buying. And telling the world what we're buying is not the favorite activity of Charlie and myself. Uh, so, and it, and it tends to screw up A future buying. So that 3 percent threshold, which exists in the UK, exists in Germany, is a real minus to us uh, in terms of accumulating shares. But I can assure you that the entire world uh, is definitely on our radar screen, and we hope to be on its. And Charlie?
3: Well, yes, I'd say that John Templeton made a fortune going into Japan very early. And having the Japanese stocks go up to 30 or 40 times earnings. And uh, that was a very admirable piece of investment. But, you know, we did all right in the same period.
0: Let's go to station three, please. Hi. Uh, Feroz
6: Nathani lived most of my l- life in India, but now in Hoboken, New Jersey. Uh, Warren, first, thank you for replying to my letter. I had miss- miss- misspelled your name. And where I come from, if I did the same thing, um, the reply would have been more on get my name correct before asking me a question. So thank you once again. Um, Investment managers nowadays um, are benefiting, benefiting a lot more uh, at the expense of the investors and the profession. Uh, my question is, both to you and Charlie, is what do you think is the best structured term fees slash fees that an, an managers should have that will give him an opportunity to maximize the time weighted and money weighted uh, returns over the ne- next few, few decades uh, and be fair to the profession, uh, the invest- investors, and himself.
0: Thank you. Now, before I answer that, I think I should tell you a very short story. It's a little embarrassing, but... I got worried a few years ago about Charlie's hearing, but, I mean, the guy's been my pal for 45 or 50 years, and I didn't really want to confront him with this apparent evidence of old age. So I went to a doctor, and I said, you know, i got this good pal, I don't think he's hearing so well, Uh, I really don't want to confront him with it, so what do you suggest I do to Check this out. He said, we'll stand across the room, talk in a normal tone of voice, see what happens. So the next time I was Charlie, I was, got across the room and I said, Charlie, I think we ought to buy General Motors at 30. Do you agree? Not a flicker, not a flicker. I went halfway across the room. I said, Charlie, I think we ought to buy General Motors at 30. Do you agree? Nothing changes. I get right next to him. Put my voice in his ear. I said Charlie, "I think we ought to buy General Motors at thirty. Do you agree?" Charlie said, "For the third time, yes." <laughs> so, Charlie, would you like to address that question?
3: <laughs> yes, the the question addressed the problem of unfairness of executive compensation and uh, the effects of that unfairness on investors. And now that you know the question, you can solve the
0: problem. (laughs) Well, Charlie and I have had plenty to say about (laughs) compensation, and and some of it makes our stomach turn. I will say this, though. There are more problems with having the wrong manager than with having the wrong compensation system. I mean, it, 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 it is enormously important who runs, you name the company, Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, American Express, and the any compensation sins are generally of minor importance uh, compared to the sin of having somebody that's uh, mediocre, running a huge company. That said, Charlie and I think that compensation has, uh, there's a natural tendency because of ratcheting, because of the publicity of what other people get, uh, and because of the lack of intensity in the bargaining process. I mean, you read about labor contracts, you know, where impasses go on for weeks and where they, they negotiate till 3 in the morning, and, you know, both sides take their case to the, to the press and everything. I ask you, when have you heard of a, of a comp committee, you know, working till 4 in the morning, declaring an impasse for a week, not being able to make a deal? It just doesn't happen, because the CEO cares enormously uh, how he or she is paid. And the, to the comp committee, and they're doing perhaps a little better job now. But it's basically play money. Uh, and of course, as I pointed out in the past, I've been on 19 boards. They put me on one comp committee, and they regretted it subsequently. Uh, you know, they they are looking for cocker spaniels with their ta- tails wagging to put on comp committees, and and you know they are not looking for dobermans. And uh, I try to pretend I'm a cocker spaniel just to get on one, but it doesn't work. Uh, but it is. It is not, there is not a parity of intensity in the bargaining process. One guy cares enormously and the others don't. And as Charlie has pointed out in the past, what really drives a lot of this, this ratcheting impact, is, is envy. It, uh, I saw that on Wall Street, that you can talk about greed, but if you paid somebody $2 million dollars, they might be quite happy until they found out the guy next to him made two million one, and then they were miserable. And Charlie also has pointed out that uh, that envy of the seven deadly sins is probably the dumbest, because if you're envious of somebody, you feel terrible. You know, and the other guy isn't bothered at all. So all you get out of envy is this miserable grinding in your stomach and all that sort of thing. You know, compare that to some of the other sins, like gluttony, which we are about to engage in. Ah! Uh, <laughs> There's some upside to gluttony. Uh, I'm told there's upside to lust, but I'll leave that to Charlie to explain. <laughs> but envy—where the hell is the upside? You know, but it does produce—it does produce this ratcheting effect in 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 pay. Uh, the comp committee sits down. The human relations person comes in. The human relations person knows that what the CEO thinks of them is going to determine their future, and the human relations. Department recommends some comp consultant, the comp consultant knows that his recommendation to other firms is dependent on whether the, what these people say about him. So, under those circumstances, you know, can you imagine that it's anything like a fair fight? It's a joke, yeah. Charlie.
3: Yes, the process is contributed to by a wonderful bunch of people called compensation consultants, and that reminds me of the old story where the mother asked the child why she told the census taker that. The man of the house was in prison for embezzlement. And the child said, I didn't want to admit he was a compensation consultant.
0: We'll get around to the rest of you later on, too. Don't feel smug because we haven't attacked you. I just had a note handed to me. We do have about 27,000 people here. The overflow rooms are full. And we have a whole bunch in the exhibition hall as
1: well. Let's go to number four. Yes, good morning. I'm Rob Vinal. I'm from the UK, and I traveled from Switzerland to be here today. This is a question that Charlie will like. There is a study by David Yarner that companies with private jets underperform their peers by 4%. What is the yardstick that you use to judge whether people are good stewards of money, management?
0: Did he direct that to you, Charlie?
3: Well, he referred to uh, yeah. Yeah, private jets uh, being a possible indication of executive excess. I want to report that we're solidly in favor of private jets.
0: Even pay for them ourselves, <laughs> Charlie. Uh, Charlie used only he, he traveled on the bus, and only then when they offered a senior citizens discount. But in recent years, I've shamed him into into uh, getting his own um, net jet share. I have my own uh, two net jet shares. Uh, actually, um, Berkshire is significantly better off in a number of its businesses, and including at the corporate level, uh, because we we use uh, corporate jets. Uh, I don't know which deals wouldn't have been made, but I do know that <clears throat> I would have not, <clears throat> excuse me, I would not have had the same enthusiasm for traveling thousands of miles and to go after deal after deal and so on. And I see what it produces uh, at a number of our other businesses. So it it has been a valuable business tool. It can be misused like anything else. I remember many, many years ago, we owned stock in a public company and the CEO stopped off in Omaha on the way to see me. And he explained that they used some Grocery chain in Idaho or something to be sort of their test case on all new products. They would go out and visit it because they also had this lodge out there. And I mean, you can you can abuse any system, but properly used, I would say that corporate jets have been a a real asset uh, to Berkshire. um, uh, I would go back to this comp question just one second, too. I mean, comp is not rocket science. I mean, we have very simple systems that compensate those people whose pictures you saw during the movie. They're terrific people. We compensate them based on things that are under their control and that we care about. And we don't make it complicated. And we don't don't pay them for things that are happening that they have nothing to do with. I mean, we talked last year uh, about what you do in a a commodity business like copper, oil. I mean, if, if oil goes from $30 to $60 a barrel, there's no reason in the world why oil executives should get paid more for what's going on. They didn't get it to $60 a barrel. If they have low finding costs, which is under their control and which is important, I would pay like crazy for that because the person who finds oil and develops reserves at six dollars a barrel is worth a whole lot more than somebody that, that finds and develops them at ten dollars a barrel, assuming they're similar quality reserves. That is the job that you hire the person for. But the price of oil, they've got nothing to do with them and to hand them huge checks because oil goes up or to cut them back because it goes down. If somebody if oil went down and somebody had the lowest finding costs that was working for us, we would pay them like crazy. Charlie?
3: Yeah, well, I'd like to go back to that corporate jet thing. If the trappings of power are greatly abused, I think you would find a correlation that some of those companies would be disappointing to investors. And, you know, man has known for a long time that getting too enchanted with the trappings of power is counterproductive. The Roman Empire, emperor that's most remembered is as uh, presiding over a period of great felicity was Marcus Aurelius, who was totally against the trappings of power, even though he had them all. He had all the power. Uh, So I think all these things can be abused, and uh, I think the best way to tackle the subject is to provide examples of contrary
0: behavior. Charlie, I have a trap or two here. At them. <laughs> go here. <laughs> oh, this is our idea of corporate benefits up here. Lots of lots of fudge, lots of peanut brittle. I I recommend the diet to everyone. Let's go to number five.
1: David, David, Win-
2: David Winters, Mountain Lakes, New Jersey. Could you please explain what you believe the impact? and hopefully benefit of a credit contraction would be on Berkshire Hathaway and maybe higher interest rates as well?
0: Well, we, we do benefit uh, when others suffer. That doesn't mean we enjoy their suffering, but, but uh, uh, times of chaos in financial markets uh, the situation that existed in, in, in junk bonds in 2002, the situation that existed in equities, you know, back in 1974. So uh, I don't think you'll necessarily see a contraction in credit. That uh, I think most authorities are very reluctant to really step on the brakes. Uh, you know, it's too easy to figure out who did step on the brakes. But you could very well see some exogenous event that starts feeding on itself in markets. In fact, I think it's much more prone to feed on itself in markets than in most periods in the past uh, if, you, if you really got a shock to the system. And that would result in a huge widening of credit spreads, cheaper equity prices, all kinds of things that, uh, that actually are helpful to Berkshire because we usually have uh, at least some money around to do something uh, at times like that. There will be periods like that. Uh, it, if you go back 30 or 40 years, when credit contracted, it just really wasn't available. Charlie and I went through a couple of periods like that. We were trying to buy a bank in Chicago 40, 40 uh, or so years ago, and, and the only uh, people that would lend it to us in the world, because the banks weren't lending for, for acquisitions, we found some people over in Kuwait who said they'd lend it to us in dinars, and we thought, you know, it might be fine to borrow it, but when it came time to pay them back the dinars, they would probably be telling us what the dinar was worth. So we passed on that particular deal. I mean, you had real credit contractions then. And, of course, the whole reason, not, I would say the major reason the Federal Reserve was established was the huge contractions in credit that were were felt, particularly here in places like the Midwest, where they were dependent on correspondent banks and in, in the larger cities. And when those banks had problems, these, the banks here got shut off. And we really needed a system that, that that would not have that happen except by design. And I would say the Fed, by design, is is probably not going to produce any credit, crunch, cr- credit crunches. Charlie?
3: Well, the last time we had that credit contraction, we made, what, a quick 3 or $4 billion. Uh, and we were acting with vigor. The whole investment world is more and more competitive. And, uh, and if you talk about a real credit contraction, which gums up the whole civilization, uh, no one would welcome that. And I would predict that if we ever had a really big credit contraction after a period Like the one we're in with all this excess, which is causing so much envy and resentment, uh, that we would get legislation that uh, most of us wouldn't like.
0: There's a book uh, by Jonathan Alter that came out about a year ago that talks about the first hundred days uh, after Roosevelt took over, and and by the nature of the book, it tells about some of the days before that too, but. Uh, if you want to get an example of — I mean, this country was close to the brink at that point, And basically, Roosevelt got anything he passed he wanted to just as fast as they could write the bills there initially. And that was a good thing, uh, you know, with banks closing and people dealing in script and that sort of thing. So, nobody wants that to come back. And we've learned a lot more about that sort of thing uh, since the Great Depression. I don't think you'll see a an orchestrated credit contraction now you had in 1998 in the fall when long-term capital management got in trouble you had a seize up of the credit markets it wasn't that it wasn't an orchestrated by the fed type contraction you simply had people panicked about even the most even the safest of instruments and credit spreads doing things that they would never done before And that's rather an interesting example, because that was not 100 years ago. It was less than 10 years ago. You had all kinds of people with high IQs in Wall Street. You had all kinds of people with cash available. And you had some really really extraordinary things happen in credit markets simply because people panicked, and they felt other people were going to panic. And you get these second and third degree... Uh, type reactions in markets. We will see that sort of thing again. It won't be the same, but you know, as Mark Twain said, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, and we will have something that rhymes with with 1998. Number six.
7: Hello, my name is Andrew Paulin, a former Michigander, now from Woburn, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. My question is for Charlie, the Warren, please add your thoughts as well. Charlie, you were quoted in Poor Charlie's Almanac as saying, quote, Ben Franklin was a very good amb- ambassador, and whatever was wrong with him from John Adams' point of view probably helped him with the French, end quote. If you are willing, I am curious to hear your additional thoughts regarding John Adams and his wife, Abigail Adams.
3: Well, of course, they were wonderful people, both of them. And
0: uh, Did you know them personally, Charlie? No. <laughs> no. no. no.
3: <laughs> but if you wanted to have a really jolly evening, I would take Franklin every time and uh, and the the French loved Franklin. I think I remind many people too much of John Adams and too little of Ben Franklin. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he does pretty well in respect to Ben Franklin, too. <laughs> Let's go to number seven.
2: My name is Takashi Ito from Japan in addition to the global excess liquidity uh, corporate profits are very high compared to the share of labor does that make it extra challenging
0: for you to find investment opportunities thank you yes corporate profits in the united states are <clears throat> except for just a very few years a record in terms of gdp it's, it, I, i've been amazed <clears throat> that, after being in a range between four and six percent of GDP, they have jumped upward, and <clears throat> you would not think this would be sustainable over time. Um, excuse me, just one second, Charlie you want to talk for a second <clears throat> you 've just heard him on the subject um, but corporate profits, when they get up to eight or percent plus of GDP. Um, you know that is very high, and so far it has caused no reaction. One one reaction could be higher corporate taxes. Um, you have lots and lots of businesses in this country earning twenty or twenty five percent on tangible equity in a world where long term bond rates are four and three quarters percent government bond rates. That's extraordinary. Um, if you'd read an economics book. 40 years ago, and it talked about that kind of a situation persisting, well, you wouldn't have found a book like that. I mean, that that does not make sense under pure economic theory. But it's been occurring for some time. And as a matter of fact, it's gotten more extreme. Corporate profits continue to rise as a percentage of GDP. That means somebody else's share of GDP is going down. And you're quite correct that the, the labor component of GDP has actually fallen fairly significantly whether that becomes a political issue uh maybe in the next campaign whether it becomes something that congress does something about the congress has the power to change that ratio very quickly corporate tax rates not that long ago were 52 percent and now they're 35 percent and a whole lot of companies get by with paying 20 percent or less so i would i would say that at the moment Corporate America is kind of living in the best of all worlds. And, and history has shown that those conditions don't persist indefinitely. What brings it to an end, when it, when it happens, I don't know. But I would not expect corporate profits to be eight and a fraction percent of GDP uh, on average in the future. Charlie?
3: Yeah, of course, a lot of the profits are not in the manufacturing sector or the retailing sector either. A lot of them are in this financial sector. And so we've had a huge flow of, of profit to, to banks and investment banks and investment management groups of all kinds, including various kinds of private equity. And uh, that has, I think, no precedent I don't think it's ever been as extreme as it is now. Do you agree with that?
0: Yeah, and, and Charlie and I would have said 20 years ago and we've done things in banking from time to time, including owning a bank. Uh, but if you'd, you'd said to us, in a world of four and three quarters percent long term governments, will one major bank after another be earning more than 20 percent on tangible equity? dealing in what is basically a commodity money, we would have said that 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 condition just wouldn't persist. Now, part of that is because the banks are geared up more. So if you earn 1.5% on deposits, you know, and you have, uh, or 1.5% on assets, and you have assets of 15 times equity, you're going to be earning 22.5% on equity. And by gearing up more, it does improve the return on equity but you would you still would think that would be self-neutralizing you think that after one guy did it another guy would do, did it would do it and instead of earning one and a half percent on assets you'd earn you know nine tenths of a percent or one percent on assets but it hasn't happened that's gone on for a long time and you know we are we are living at i'd have to look at a chart on it but there may have been a year or two post-world war ii uh, but I don't think that, I would bet there haven't been uh, more than two or three years in the last 75 when corporate profits as a percentage of GDP have been been this high.
3: Some of this has come from consumer credit, which I think has been pushed to extremes that we've never before seen in the history of this country. Some other countries that pushed consumer credit very hard had enormous collapses Korea had one for instance that caused chaos for what two or three years maybe longer so I don't think this is a time to just swing for the fences
0: and that chaos in 1997 and 1998 when the when the IMF stepped in I mean it, it was it was bad in Korea for a while it produced some of the most ridiculously low stock prices that I've ever seen in my life. In fact, I mean, you could go back to 1932 in this country, and you wouldn't have seen things any cheaper uh, And in the meantime, the companies rebuilt their balance sheets and their earning power. So things do turn around in, in financial markets. You, you will — if you're young enough, you, you, will see, you will see everything and then some. I mentioned in the annual report, in looking for an investment manager to succeed me, that we care enormously about finding somebody who's not all not cognizant of everything that, risky that's already happened, but that also can envision things that have not yet been experienced. That's our job in the insurance business, and it's our job in the investment business. And there are a lot of people that just don't seem to, they're not, they're very smart, but they just, uh, they're just not wired to think about about troubles that they haven't actually witnessed before. But, you know, that's the problem Noah had. You know, the first 40 days, it was, it was tough sledding for Noah. But he got, he got revenge eventually. Let's go to number eight.
4: Hello, my name is Brian Vilwak,
2: Fremont, Nebraska. With the growing number of failed-to-deliver trades happening in our stock markets, including investors'
0: cash accounts, Roth IRAs, and other retirement accounts, it seems like the problem is getting worse. With some companies being on the regulation show list for hundreds of days, what can be done to make Wall Street deliver stock that they have sold but never delivered? Thank you. Yeah, the so-called fail-to-deliver and and, 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 uh, naked shorting, I think, is the question. I don't know exactly — I've never been in a position where I've asked a, a broker from whom I bought stock to give me the certificate and had them decline it for any period of time. I would think that you might have some action against them. But I've never — I do not see the problem at all with, with people shorting stocks. I mean, I, I would welcome people shorting Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, it, it, uh, if you own stock and they need to borrow from you, you can get some extra income from your stock. And the one sure buyer of your stock eventually is somebody who shorted it. I mean, that guy's going to buy it someday. Uh, and I have no, I have no problem with with shorts. If there's some kind of a game that's played, uh, uh, and I've read about it, I've never seen it happen to anything that we've owned. Uh, like I say, if anybody wants the naked short. Berkshire Hathaway, they can do it till the cows come home, and, and we'll, be, uh, we'll be happy to, and we'll have a special meeting for them. Uh, but uh, —— and I, I would say this. The Shorts generally have the tougher time of it in this world. I mean, there are more people bullying stocks for phony reasons than there are bearing stocks uh, for phony reasons. So I, I do not see Shorts — as any great threat to the world. If, if, if enough people shorted Berkshire stock, they would have to borrow it, and they would pay you to borrow your stock, and that's, just, that's found money. We did that on USG. When USG got hammered after uh, uh, they went into bankruptcy, or maybe just before, um, one large brokerage firm came to us, and they wanted us to lend them uh, millions of shares, and they paid us a lot of money. And we happily lent them the stock. We wish they'd borrowed more. In fact, we insisted that they borrow it for a given length of time, just so that we could collect a, a large premium. And I don't know how many. I'd have to look it up. But you know, I don't know whether it's in the hundred thousands or maybe low millions. But we were better off. And they didn't do too well shorting USG at four dollars a share either. But it, it was immaterial to us. Uh, so I do not regard. I do not regard shorts as—it's a tough way to make a living. Uh, uh, It's very easy to spot phony stocks and promoted stocks, but it's very hard to tell when that'll turn around. And and somebody that's promoted a stock to five times what it's worth may very well promote it to ten times what it's worth. And if you're short, that can get very painful. Uh, Charlie, do you have any thoughts on shorting?
3: Well, not on shorting, but— those delays in in delivering sometimes reflect a tremendous slop in the clearance process. And it is not good for a civilization to have a huge slop in the clearance processes for its security trades. That would be sort of like having a lot of slop in the management of your atomic power plants. It's not a good idea to have, have slop that causes a lot of financial exposure that people are ignoring. Charlie, uh,
0: reach back into your law uh, practice. If I buy 1,000 shares of General Motors and my broker doesn't deliver it to me, and I ask him to deliver it, and he doesn't deliver it to me after a week or two weeks or three weeks, what's the situation?
3: Well, if you're a private customer, you may wait a while. And a lot of the other trades... uh, Clearance systems do cause people to put up collateral and and so on, but uh, uh, a lot of uh, take derivative trading. There's a lot of slop in derivative trading, and the clearance problem would be awful if a lot of people wanted to do something at once.
0: But if I demand delivery after three weeks, can I uh, can I walk into court and? Say, I want my stock, I've given you the money?
3: I don't think there's any court that can hand you a stocking mm-hmm. certificate just because you want it. No, mm-hmm. if the clearance system is failing you, I, mm-hmm. you can scream a lot, and you may have some ultimate remedy, but, but there's uh, uh, I'll
0: get somebody else to represent me. <laughs> 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 Number nine. Hello. Hello. My name is
6: Johann Feudenberg from Hanover, Germany. Do you think
0: gambling companies will have a great future? Thank you. What kind of companies? Gambling companies. Gambling, gambling companies will have a terrific future yeah, if they're legal. That, you know, which ones or anything? I don't know anything about that. But desire of people to gamble and they gamble in stocks incidentally too. Uh, day trading, I would say in very often was, came very close to uh, gambling as defined. Uh, um, but people, people like to gamble. You know, I mean, it's, a, a, if, if the Super Bowl is on, or even, well, better yet, if a terribly boring football game is on, but you don't have anything to do, uh, and you're sitting there with somebody else, you're probably going to enjoy the game more if you bet a few bucks on it one way or the other. Uh, as you know, I mean, we insure hurricanes, so I watch the Weather Channel, but that's a uh, —— it can be exciting. <laughs> uh, but people, the, the, the human propensity to gamble is, is huge. Now, when it was legalized only in — pretty much in Nevada, you had to go to some distance or break some laws to do any serious gambling. — but as the states learned to, uh, you know, what a great source of, of uh, revenue it was, uh, they gradually made it easier and easier and easier for people to gamble. And believe me, the easier it's made, uh, the more people will gamble. I mean, when I was — my, my children are here, and 40 years ago, uh, I bought a slot machine, and I put it up on our third floor. And I could give my kids any allowance they wanted as long as it was in dimes. I mean, I had it all back by nightfall. Uh, I, th- I thought it would be a good lesson for them. And, uh, now, they weren't going to Las Vegas to do it, but believe me, when it was on the third floor, they could find it, you know. And, uh, and my payout ratio was terrible, too, but that's the kind of father I was. Uh, the, uh, But gambling, you know, people are always going to want to do it. And... Uh, for that reason, I particularly think that access, um, you know, in terms of friendly gambling or anything like that, I, it, I'm, I, I'm not a prude about it. But I do think that to quite an extent, gambling is a tax on ignorance. I mean, if you want to, if you want to tax the, the ignorant, people who will do things with the odds against them, you know, you just put it in and guys like me don't have to pay taxes. And I, I, I really don't, I find that, I, I find it kind of socially re- revolting when a gov- a government preys on the weaknesses of its citizenry rather than acts to serve them. And and believe me, when a government sticks, li- you know, I, 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 you know when, a, when a government makes it easy for people to, Take their social security checks and start pulling handles, uh, or participating in lotteries or whatever it may be. It, it's a pretty cynical act. It works. It's a pretty cynical act, and it uh, it it, uh, it relieves taxes on those you know who who, who don't fall for those and or, or who don't or who aren't dreaming about having a car instead of actually having a car, or dreaming about a color TV instead of having one. Uh, so it's it's not government at its best and. I think other things flow from that over time, too. Charlie?
3: Yeah, I would argue that the gambling casinos use clever psychological tricks to cause people to hurt themselves. There is undoubtedly a lot of harmless amusement in the casinos, but there's also a lot of grievous injury that is deliberately caused by the casinos. It's a dirty business, and I don't think you'll find a casino soon in Berkshire Hathaway.
0: Number 10, please. Good morning. I'm Thomas
7: Kamei from San Francisco. I'm 17 years old, and this is my 10th consecutive
0: annual meeting. It must be a PhD by now, at least. <laughs> Mr.
7: Buffett and Mr. Munger. I'm curious about what you think is the best way to become a better investor. Should I get an MBA, get more war experience, read more Charlie Munger almanacs, or merely is it genetic and out of my hands?
0: Well, I think you should read everything you can. Uh, I can, I can tell you in my own case, I think by the time I was... I know by the time I was uh, 10, I'd read every book in the Alma Public Library that had anything to do with investing, and many of them I'd read twice. So I don't think there's anything like reading. uh, uh, And not just as limited to investing at all, but uh, you just got to fill up your mind with various competing thoughts and sort them out as to to what uh, really makes sense over time. And then once you've done a lot of that, I think you have to jump in the water, because investing on paper and doing, you know, and, and, and investing with real money, you know, is like the difference between reading a romance novel and doing something else. So, I I, I would, I, I, there, there is nothing like actually uh, uh, having a little experience in investing. Uh, and And you soon find out whether you like it. If you like it, if it turns you on, you know, you're probably going to do well on it. but And the earlier you start, uh, the better in terms of reading. But, you know, I read a book at age 19 that formed my framework for thinking about investments ever since. I mean, what I am doing today at 76 is running things through the same thought pattern that I got from a book I read when I was 19. And I read all the other books, too. But if you it, and you have to read a lot of them to know which ones really do jump out at you and which ideas jump out at you over time. So I would say that uh, read and, and then on a small scale, in a way that can't hurt you financially, uh, do some of it yourself. Charlie?
3: Well, Sandy Gottesman, who is a Berkshire director, runs a large and successful investment operation. And you can tell what he thinks causes people to learn to be good investors by noticing his employment practices. When a young man comes to Sandy, he asks a very simple question. No matter how young the man is, he says, what do you own and why do you own it? And if you haven't been interested enough in the subject to uh, have that involvement already, why, he'd rather you go somewhere else.
0: It's very — that whole idea that you, you own a business, you know, is vital to the investment process. I mean, if you were going to buy a farm, you'd say, I'm buying this 160-acre farm because I expect that the farm will produce 120 bushels uh, an acre of corn, or 45 bushels an acre of soybeans, and I can buy the — you know, you go through the whole process. It'd be, a, it'd be a quantitative decision, and it would be based on pretty solid stuff would not be based on you know, what you saw on television that day. It would not be based on you know, what your neighbor said to you or anything of the sort. It's the same thing with stocks. I used to always recommend to my students that they take a yellow pad like this, and if they're buying 100 shares of General Motors at 30, and General Motors has whatever it has out, 600 million shares or a little less, that they say, I'm, I'm going to buy the General Motors company for $18 billion, and here's why. And if they can't write a good essay on that subject, they've got no business buying 100 shares or 10 shares or one share at $30 per share, because they they are not subjecting it to business tests. And to get in the habit of thinking that way, you know, Sandy would have followed it up with the questions based on how you answered the first two questions that made you defend exactly why you thought that business was cheap at the price at which you were buying it. And any other answer, you would flunk. Number 11.
6: Uh, Mr Buffett and Mr Munger, I'm Mark Rabinov from Melbourne, Australia. I just wanted to ask you, how do you judge the right margin of safety to use when investing in various common stocks? For example, in a dominant, long-standing, stable business, would you demand a 10% margin of safety? And if so, how would you increase this in a weaker business? Thank you.
0: We, We favor the businesses where we really think we know the answer. And therefore, if a business gets to the point where we think the industry in which it operates, the competitive position uh, or anything is is so chancy that we can't really come up with a figure, we don't really try to compensate for that sort of thing by having some extra-large margin of safety. We really go on try to go on to something that we understand better. So if we buy something like C's candy, as a business or coca-cola as a stock uh, we don't think we need a huge margin of safety because we don't think we're going to be wrong about our uh, about our assumptions in any material way Uh, what we really want to do is buy a business that's a great business which means a business is going to earn a high return on capital employed for a very long period of time and where we think the management will treat us right and we don't have to mark those down a lot when we find those factors. We'd love to find them when they're selling at 40 cents on the dollar, but we will buy those at much closer to a dollar on the dollar. We don't like to pay a dollar on the dollar, but we'll pay something close. Uh, and if we really get to something, you know, when we see a great business, it's like if you see some, somebody walk in the door, and you don't know whether they weigh 300 pounds or 325 pounds, you still know they're fat. Right, you know, and so if we see something where we know it's fat financially, we don't worry about being precise, and if we can come in in that particular example at the equivalent of 270 pounds, we'll feel good. But if we find find something where the competitive aspects are, it's just the nature of the business that you really can't see out 5 or 10 or 20 years, because that's what investing is, is seeing out. You don't get paid for what's already happened you only get paid for what's going to happen in the future the past is only useful to you in the extent to which it gives you insights into the future and sometimes the past doesn't give you any insights into the future and in other cases like the stable business that you uh, you postulated um, it probably does give you a pretty good guideline as to what's going to happen in the future and you don't need a huge margin of safety you you should have something that you all should always should feel you're getting a little more than what uh, what it's worth, and there are times when we've been able to buy wonderful businesses at a quarter of what they're worth. but we haven't seen those t- well, we saw it in Korea here recently, but you don't see those uh, sort of things uh, very often. And does that mean you should sit around and hope they come back for 10 or 15, you know wait 10 or 15 years? That's not the way we do it. If we can buy good businesses at a reasonable valuation, we're going to keep doing it, Charlie.
3: Yeah, you're, that margin of safety concept boils down to getting more value than you're paying, and that value can exist in a lot of different forms. If you're paid four to one on something that's an even money proposition, why well, that's a value proposition too. Uh, it, it's high school algebra, and people who don't, how to use high school algebra should take up some other activity.
0: Number twelve. Morning. Uh, g- good morning. Morning. My name is Mike Klein,
8: and I'm a general surgeon from Salinas, California. Given your resources and experience in underwriting insurance, do you have any thoughts? of venturing into or helping to solve our healthcare mess. Time is ripe for a new approach with Berkshire's clarity brought to the formula. Let's acknowledge the stakes are huge with implication for our economy and our future future
3: as a country. Let me try that one. It's too tough. I would. We I, Warren and I can't solve that but, yeah, one. Yeah, we
0: can't solve that one. Uh, we we try to look for easy problems because those are the ones we find we have the answers for, and and you can do that in investments. We we don't really try tough things. Uh, now, sometimes life hands you a problem, not in the financial area in our case usually, but in, it'll hand you a problem that is that is very tough and that you have to wrestle with. But we don't go around looking for tough problems. I would say this. We. We do very very little in in health insurance. Uh, you know, if if we were to have if we were looking for a solution through the private sector, we would be looking for something with very very low distribution costs. I mean, it, it, you do not want a lot of the revenue soaked up in frictional costs between uh, the benefits paid and the and the, and the premiums received. I don't know how to do that, and, and I haven't seen anybody else that's very good at doing it. And you can say if you're paying close to 15 percent of GDP for health costs, you know, somebody ought to be able to figure out something. But I haven't — I haven't heard it. Maybe we'll hear it in the upcoming political campaign. But Charlie's view reflects mine at the present. Now we're going to go to the Grand Ballroom. We have these two overflow rooms that are full or more or less full. And the Grand Ballroom is number 13. Would they come in, please?
7: Uh, This is Phil McCall from Connecticut. I wondered if you could comment
2: on a subject I don't think you'd like to talk about very much, which is intrinsic value. And the evolution over the past 10 or 12 years of going to uh, off and on, but giving us in, in investments and then giving us the operating income and suggesting that might be a good guide to us. I find it extremely helpful. Uh, I'm not sure other people do when looking out the 20 years you're talking about, looking ahead on both those two parts. Any comments you might have, I'd surely appreciate.
0: Yeah, well, the intrinsic value of a Berkshire, uh, like any other business, is based on the future amount of cash that can be expected to be delivered by the business between now and Judgment Day, discounted back at the proper rate. Now, that's pretty nebulous. Another way of looking at it is to try and figure out the value of the businesses we own presently, and we try to give you the information that will enable you to make a reasonably close estimate as that. We own lots of marketable securities. It's probably safe to say that, that, that they are worth more or less what they are carried for. And then we own a number of operating businesses and we try to give you the figures on those businesses that are the figures that we use in in making our own judgments about the value of those businesses. Now that tells you what, what we have today and more or less what it's worth. But since Berkshire retains all of its earnings, it becomes very important to evaluate what will be done with those earnings over time. I mean, it, it, it is not only a question of what the present businesses are worth, it's a, it's a judgment on the, on the efficiency or the effectiveness with which retained earnings will be used. If you had looked at the intrinsic value of Berkshire in 1965, we had a textile business that was probably worth about $12 a share. Uh, but that was not the only part of the equation because we intended to use any cash generated to try and buy into better businesses than we had. And we were fortunate enough to be able to buy in the insurance business in 1967 and build on that. So it was not only a combination of the business we had, but the skill with which retained earnings would be used that determined uh, what the present value actually should have been at Berkshire going back that far. It's the same situation today. We will put to work billions and billions of dollars this year, next year, the year after. If we put that to work effectively, each dollar has a greater present value than a dollar has in simply in cash or distributed. If we, if we do it ineffectively, it, it has a value of something less. The businesses today, you know, we have whatever the figure is in the annual report, uh, roughly $80,000 in marketable securities. If our insurance business breaks even, that $80,000 is free to us in terms of using it. And we have a group of operating businesses, and we show their earnings in the the report. And we're going to try and add to those, and they'll try to add to their earnings. Um, But if Charlie and I were each right now to write down on a piece of paper what we think the intrinsic value of Berkshire is, our figures would not be the same. They'd be reasonably close. Uh, and uh, I think with that, I'll turn it over to Charlie. (laughs) Yeah,
3: what's hard to judge at Berkshire is is the likelihood that you'll have anything like the past to look forward to in the future. Berkshire has gotten very extreme in terms of investment results. In fact, it's gotten so extreme that it's, hard to think of another similar precedent in the history of the world. And the the balance sheet is is gross, considering uh, the small beginnings of the place. Now, what on earth has caused this extreme record to go on for such a very long time? I would argue that the young man who was reading everything he could read when he was 10 years old, became a learning machine, and he got a lot of power early, and then he got a very long run when he kept learning. If Warren had uh, not been learning all the while, I'm telling you, having watched the process closely, the record would be a pale shadow of what it is, and Warren has improved since he passed the retirement age of man. In other words, in this field, at least, you can improve when you're old. Now. Most people don't even try and create that kind of a record. They pass power from one 65-year-old to one 59-year-old and then do it over and over again. But you get an enormous advantage from practice in this field. And so what happened accidentally in the case of Warren has helped you shareholders greatly because you had this long run with power extremely concentrated. and, uh, And with the man holding the power, being a ferocious learner. Uh, our, our system ought to be more copied than it is. This idea of, of passing the power from one old codger to another in a settled way is not necessarily the right system at all.
0: We, we have a very strong culture now of, of rationality, of being owner-oriented that will go on long after I'm not around. Uh, and and we have the talent on the operating side in place to do a lot of wonderful things over time. We, we will need in capital allocation to keep doing intelligent things. We won't get to do brilliant things, because you don't get to do brilliant things with the kind of sums we're talking about. Maybe once in a blue moon or something, you know, you'll get a chance. But we will need somebody uh, that never does — basically doesn't do any dumb things and occasionally does something that's, that's reasonably good. That can be done, and, and we have — we're on that road all the, already. Uh, it is not fitting into this organization as an investment officer or a capital allocator. You're getting in the right vehicle. It has the right standards. It will reject ideas that that really are irrational. I, I've been on a lot of boards. Charlie's been on a lot of boards. You would be amazed at the number of things that are responding to animal spirits rather than to rationality that take place. And we have our animal spirits, but we devote them to
1: other areas. Uh,
0: let's go on to number 14. That's in uh, That's in the junior ballroom.
1: Yes. uh, Hi, Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger. This is uh, Whitney Tilson, a shareholder from New York. Uh, For many years, both of you have been warning about the dangers of derivatives, uh, at one point calling them financial weapons of mass destruction. Uh, Yet, every year, tens of trillions of dollars of derivatives are are bought and sold. Uh, It just seems to be getting bigger and bigger and almost uh, certainly improperly accounted for. And so I was wondering if you could comment uh, specifically if you have any thoughts on how much longer this might go on. Do you see anything imminent uh, that could uh, derail this ever-inflating bubble? Uh, What might trigger it, and uh, who should be doing what to try and mitigate uh, this looming danger?
0: Well, we've tried to do a little to mitigate it ourselves by talking about it. But the uh, you're right that. And it isn't the derivative itself. I mean, there's nothing evil about a derivative instrument. As I mentioned, we we have 60-some of them at at Berkshire. And on Monday, I will go over the directors. With the directors, I'll go over all 60-some. And believe me, we'll make money out of those particular instruments. Uh, But the usage of them on an expanding basis, more and more imaginative ways of using them, introduces essentially more and more leverage uh, into the system. And it's an invisible or largely invisible sort of leverage. Now, if you go back to the 1920s, uh, after the crash, the United States government held hearings. They decided that leverage margin in those days, as they call it, leverage contributed to perhaps the Crash itself, and certainly to the extent of the crash, and it was like pouring gasoline on a fire. Was at, at, at when uh, people's holdings got tripped. You know, when stocks went down ten percent, people had to sell. Another ten percent more, people had to sell, and so on. So leverage was regarded as dangerous, and the federal and the United States government empowered the Federal Reserve to regulate margin requirements, regulate leverage. And that was taken very seriously. And for decades, it was a a source of real attention. I mean, if you went to a bank and tried to borrow money on a stock, they made you sign certain papers as to that you weren't in violation of the margin requirements, and they policed it. And it was taken quite seriously when the Fed increased or decreased margin requirements. It was a signal of how they felt about the level of speculation. Well, the introduction of, of, um, Derivatives uh, and index future, all that sort of thing, uh, has just totally made any regulation of margin requirements uh, a joke. They still exist, and the, the, you know it's it's a, it's an anachronism. Um, so, I believe I think Charlie probably agrees with me that we may not know where exactly the danger begins and where and at what point it becomes a super danger and so on. We certainly don't know what will end it precisely. We don't know when it will end precisely. But we probably, at least I believe, that it will go on and increase to the point where at some point uh, there'll be some very unpleasant things happen in markets because of it. You saw one example uh, of what can happen under forced sales uh, back in October 19, 1987, when you had so-called portfolio insurance. Well, now, portfolio insurance, and you ought to go back and read the literature for the couple years preceding that. I mean, this was something that came out of academia, and it was regarded as a great advance in financial theories and everything. It was a joke. It was a bunch of stop-loss orders, which, you know, go back 150 years or something, except that they were done automatically, and in large scale by institutions, and they were merchandise. People paid a lot of money to people to teach them how to put in a stop-loss order. And what happened, of course, was that if you have a whole series of stop-loss orders by very big institutions, you are pouring gasoline on, on fire. And when October 19th came along, you had a 22 percent shrink in the value of American business caused essentially by a doomsday machine. A dead hand was selling as each level got hit. And three weeks earlier, people were proclaiming the the beauty of this. Well, that is nothing compared — it was a formal arrangement to have these — this dynamic hedging or portfolio insurance uh, sell things. But you have the same thing existing when you have fund operators operating with billions and in aggregate trillions of dollars Leveraged, who will respond to the same st- stimulus? They have what is, they have what we would call a crowded trade, but they don't know it. It's not a formal crowded trade. It's just that they're all ready to sell if a certain given signal or a certain given activity occurs. And when you get that coupled with extreme leverage, which derivatives allow, you will someday get a very, very chaotic situation. I have no idea when, I have no idea what the exogenous factor. I didn't know that shooting some archduke you know would start World War I, and I have no idea what will cause this kind of a thing, uh, but it'll happen.:
3: Yeah, and of course, the, the accounting being deficient enormously contributes to the risks. If you get paid enormous bonuses based on reporting profits that don't exist, you're going to keep doing whatever causes those phony profits to keep appearing on the books. And what makes that so difficult is that most of the accounting profession doesn't even recognize how stupidly it is behaving. And one of the people in charge of accounting standards said to me, well, this is better this derivative accounting because it's marked to market and don't we want current information?" And I said, yes, but if you mark-to-model and, and you create the models and your accountants trust your models and you can just report whatever profit you want as long as you keep expanding the positions bigger and bigger and bigger, the way human nature is, that will cause terrible results and terrible behavior. And this person said to me, Well, you just don't understand accounting.
0: If yeah, four years ago or whenever it was when we started to liquidate Genry's portfolio, we, we, had a, we had reserves set up for in the hundreds of millions and all sorts of things. And our auditor, and I emphasize any other of the big four auditors, absolutely would have attested to the fact that our stuff was marked to market. You know I just wish I'd sold the portfolio to the auditors that day. <laughs> I'd be four hundred million better off. Uh, so it it's a real problem. Now there's one thing that's, that's really quite interesting to me. you know if if I owe you on my dry cleaning bill or something, fifteen dollars and they're auditing the dry cleaners, they check with me and they find out that I owe you fifteen dollars and it's all fine. If they're auditing me, they find out that I owe the dry cleaner fifteen bucks. There are only four big auditing firms, you know, basically, in this country. And I will — and so in many cases, if they're auditing my side of the derivative transaction, you know, what I'm valuing it at, the same firm may often be valuing or attesting to the value of the the mark by the person on the other side of the contract. I will guarantee you that if you add up the marks — On both sides, they don't — they don't equate out to zero. We — we have 60-some contracts, you know, and I will bet that people are valuing them differently on the other side than we value them themselves. And it won't be to the disadvantage of the trader on the other side. Uh, I don't get paid based on how ours are valued, so I've got no reason to want to game the system. But there are people out on the other side that do have reasons to game the system. So if I'm valuing some contract at plus a million dollars for Berkshire, that contract on the other side, it's just one piece of paper, should be valued at a minus one million by somebody else. But I think you probably have cases, and, this is, and I'm not talking about our auditors, I'm talking about all four of the firms, but they have many cases where they are attesting to values of the exact same piece of paper where the numbers are widely different on both sides. Do you have any thoughts on that, Charlie?
3: as sure as God made little green apples, this is going to cause a lot of trouble in due course. As long as it keeps expanding and ballooning and so on and the convulsions are minor, it can just go on and on. But eventually, there will be a big big, uh, denouement.
0: Let's go back to number one.
8: Hi, um, I'm Stanley Koo from Hong Kong. My question is... um, about the proliferation of short-term mindset to investing, as more and more money is being placed under absolute return mandate, um, these managers, as you just said, respond to the same response um, and uh, and credit trade uh, um, issues. So, with credit spread on, I should say, risk premium. On various products declining across the board and um, correlation across markets increasing, Um, can we read into it and say whether it's healthy or not healthy for the economy or the markets? And um, can we arguably say the portfolio insurance
0: dynamics is already in place today? Well, I think you put your finger on it, and you know we do think it's unhealthy. Obviously, if you take — there's no way I'm precisely measuring this, but I'm quite certain I'm right — if you take the degree to which, say, either bonds or stocks, the, the percentage of them that are held by people who could change their minds tomorrow morning based on a given stimulus whether it be something the Fed does or whether it be uh, some kind of an accident in financial markets, the percentage is far higher. There is an electronic herd of people around the world managing huge amounts of money who think that a decision on everything in their portfolio should be made basically daily or hourly or by the minute. And that has increased turnover on on the New York Stock Exchange, and I don't know the exact figures, but I think it was down around the 15 or 20 percent range 40 years ago, and it's increased it to 100 percent, I believe, plus now. So, and certainly in the bond, the bond market, the turnover of bonds has increased dramatically. People used to buy bonds to own them, and they buy bonds to trade them. And there's nothing evil about that, but it just means that the participants are playing a different game. And that different game can have different consequences than in a buy-and-hold environment. And I do think it it means that if if're if you 're if you're trying to beat the other fellow on a day to day basis you, you're watching news events very carefully you're watching the other fellow very carefully and if you you think he 's about to hit that key, you know you 're going to try and hit the key faster if that if, if 's the game you 're playing and if you're getting measured on results weekly so i i th- I think that you 've described the conditions that will lead to a result that, that we've been talking about expecting at, at, at some point. It's not new to markets, though. I mean, markets that do crazy things over time. Every time, when Charlie and I were at Solomon, they'd always talk to us about five sigma events or six sigma events. And that's fine if you're talking about flipping coins. But it doesn't mean anything when you get human behavior involved. And uh, people do things that, and uh, intelligent people do things, very intelligent, educated people do things. That are totally irrational, and they do them in mass and you saw it in one thousand nine hundred and ninety eight you saw it in two thousand and two and you 'll see it again and you 'll see it it 's more likely to happen when you have people trying to beat currency bond stock markets day by day it's I think it 's a fool 's game but but uh, you know, it, it may be what's required to attract money. When I set up my partnership, I told the partners, you know, you'll hear from me once a year. And I even thought in 1962, I put the partnerships together. And in the May of 1962, the market got terrible. And I actually thought of sending all my partners a letter and then sending it down to Brazil to have it re-ship back up, just to sort of test them out, but, uh, so how they felt about things. But, I, you know, I had a few with bad hearts. I said it wasn't worthwhile. Charlie? (laughs) Yeah, when people talk about sigmas
3: in terms of disaster potentialities in markets, uh, they're all crazy. They got the idea that bad results in markets would be predicted by Gaussian distributions. And the way they decided on that outcome was it made... Everything so easy to compute. They don't follow Gaussian distributions. You have to believe in the tooth fairy to believe that. And the disasters are bigger and more irritating than Gauss would have predicted.
0: It was easier to teach as well. It was easier
3: to teach, too. Yeah. I, I once asked this distinguished medical school professor why he was still... Doing an obsolete procedure, and he said it's so wonderful to teach.
0: <laughs> there's more of that in the, there's more of that in finance departments than you might think. Uh, yeah. it, it's very discouraging to learn advanced mathematics and uh, you know how to do things that that none but the priesthood can do in your field, and then find out it doesn't have any meaning. You know, I mean, and and what you do when confronted with that knowledge after you've invested these years to get your PhD, you know, and, uh, and you've maybe you've written a textbook and a paper or two, uh, having, a, having a revelation that that stuff has no utility at all and really has counter-utility, uh, I'm not sure, you know, too many people can handle it well. And, uh, and I think they just generally keep on teaching. Number two. Hello, Burkhard Wittek from Munich in Germany.
5: I would like to get some more transparency on how you make investment decisions, particularly how you determine intrinsic values. You mentioned that the theoretically correct method is discounted cash flow, but at the same time you point out the inherent difficulties of the methodology. In other books, I see that you use multiples on operating earnings or owner multiples. Your daughter Mary, in one of her books, describes another methodology where you apply compounding economics to the value of the equity. Could you give us a bit more transparency which quantitative approach you use and how many years out you try to quantify the results of the investments you're interested in?
0: I understand the question, but I'm going to pretend I don't let Charlie answer first. (laughs) (laughs) I really do. Yeah,
3: when you're trying to determine something like intrinsic value and margin of safety and so on, there is no one easy method that could be simply mechanically applied by, say, a computer and make anybody who could punch the buttons rich. By definition, this is going to be a game which you play with multiple techniques and multiple models and a lot of experience is very helpful. I don't think you can become a great investor very rapidly any more than you could become a, a great bone tumor pathologist very rapidly. It takes some experience, and that's why it's helpful to get a very early start. Um,
0: but if you're if — you, let's just say that we, we all decided we're going to buy a — or think about buying a farm. And we go up 30 miles north of here, and we find out that a farm up there can produce 120 bushels of corn. And it can produce 45 bushels of soybean per acre. And we know what fertilizer costs. And we know what the property taxes cost. And we know what we'll have to pay the farmer to actually do the work involved. And we'll get some number that we can make per acre using fairly conservative assumptions. And if you, let's just assume that when you get through making those calculations, it turns out to be that you can make $70 an acre to the owner without working at it. Then the question is, how much do you pay for the $70? Do you assume that agriculture will get a little bit better over the years so that your yields will be a little higher? Do you assume that prices will work a little higher over time? They haven't done much of that, although recently it's been good with corn and soybeans. But over the years, agriculture, prices have not done too much. So you you would be conservative in your substitution, And you might decide that for $70 an acre, you know, you would want to, if you decided you wanted a 7% return, you'd pay $1,000 an acre. Now, if Farmland is selling for 900 you know you're going to have a buy signal. And if it's selling for $1,200, you are going to look at something else. That's what we do in businesses. We are trying to figure out what those corporate farms that we're looking at are going to produce. And to do that, we have to understand their competitive position. We have to understand the, the dynamics of the business. We have to, you know, we have to be able to look out in the future. And like I've said earlier, some businesses you can't look out very far at. But the, the mathematics of investment were set out by Aesop, 600 B.C., and he said a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Now our question is, when do we get the two? You know, how long do we wait? How sure are we that there are two in the bush? Could there be more? You know, what's the right discount rate? And we measure one against the other that way. I mean, we are looking at a whole bunch of businesses. How many birds are they going to give us? When are they going to give them to us? And we try to decide which ones, you know, basically which which uh, which bushes we want to buy out in the future. It's all about and, and it's all about evaluating future future ability to distribute cash or to reinvest cash at high rates if it isn't distributed has never distributed any cash, but it's growing in its cash-producing abilities, and we retain it because we think we can create more than a dollar present value by retaining it. But it's the ability to distribute cash that gives Berkshire its value. And we try to increase that ability to distribute cash year by year by year, and then we try to keep it and invest it in a way so that a dollar bill is worth more than a dollar. Uh, you may have an insight into very few businesses. I mean, if we left here and walked by a McDonald's stand, you know, and you decided, would you pay a million dollars for that McDonald's stand or a million three or 900,000, you'd think about how likely it was there would be more competition, how — whether McDonald's could change the franchise arrangement on you, whether people are going to keep eating hamburgers, you know, all kinds of things. And you actually would say to yourself, this McDonald's stand will make X, X plus 5 percent maybe in a couple years, because over time. Uh, prices will increase a little. And that's, that's all investing is. But the, you have to know when you know what you're doing and you have to know when you're getting outside of what I call your circle of competence and you don't have the faintest idea.
3: Charlie? Yeah, the, the other thing you gotta recognize that we've never had any system for being able to make correct judgments on the values of all businesses. We throw almost all decisions into the too hard pile and we just sift for the, a few decisions we can make that are easy and uh, that's a comparative process and and if, if you're if you're looking for an ability to correctly value all investments at all times uh, we can't help you
0: we know how to step over one-foot bars, we don't know how to jump over seven-foot bars, but we do know how to recognize occasionally what is a one-foot bar, yeah. And, and we know enough to stay away from the seven-foot bars, too. Number three.
7: John Stevo, shareholder from Chicago. Uh, Mr. Buffett, Mr. Buffett, Mr. Munger, uh, thank you for the great weekend. In your annual shareholders letter, you say that you're looking for someone younger to possibly work at Berkshire, and I was wondering if you could expand on that um, and how would I apply for the job?
0: I think you just did <laughs> they uh we're looking for, we're looking for one or more i mean i would i don't think it's at all impossible we would, might even find as three or four that we would decide to do. To, uh, to have run some money and to take a closer look. We're not looking for someone to teach. I, I probably didn't make that clear enough in the annual report. We're not, we're not going to be mentors or teachers or anything of the sort. We're looking for somebody that we think knows how to do it. And there are people like that out there. We've heard from six or 700. Uh, I did hear, I heard from one that had a four-year-old son uh, I thought that was quite a compliment that they thought. I mean, I knew a caveman could do my job, but a four-year-old. <laughs> the. Uh, but we are looking, and and we have heard from a number of very intelligent people. We have heard from a number of people that have had good investment records for in recent years, and in some case, some time. The biggest problem we have <clears throat> is whether they would scale up, because it's a it's a different it's a different job to run. A hundred billion than it is to run one hundred million, and incidentally, and you can 't do as well running a hundred billion as a hundred million in in terms of returns you can 't come close to doing it that doesn 't bother us, uh, but we do want to find somebody that we think can run large sums of money mildly better than uh, the general performance in securities, and I emphasize mildly. There's no way in the world somebody's going to beat the S&P by 10 percentage points a year with $100 billion. It isn't going to happen. But we think maybe we can find somebody or some group, several of them, that can uh, maybe be a couple percentage points better. But we really are interested in being sure that we have somebody that under conditions that people haven't even seen yet will not blow it at uh, uh, You know, anything times zero is zero. And I don't care how many wonderful figures are in between. So we are looking for somebody that's wired in a way that they see risks that other people don't see, that haven't occurred. And they're plenty cognizant of the risks that have occurred. And those people are fairly rare. Charlie and I have seen a lot of very smart people uh, go broke and — or end up with very mediocre records where, you know, 99 out of the 100 things they did were intelligent, but the 100 did them in. So our job is to filter through these hundreds and hundreds of applications, find a couple of them that we think can do the job, who are much younger, perhaps give them a chunk, two, three, five billion, have them manage it for some time, have them manage it in the kind of securities that they they would scale up to a larger portfolio because, and then uh, uh, either one or more of them will get the job turned over to them at some point. Charlie?
3: Yeah, our situation in looking for this help reminds me of an apocryphal tale about Mozart. And a young man of 25 or so once asked to see Mozart and he said, I'm thinking of starting to write symphony, symphonies and I'd like to get your advice. And Mozart said, well, you're too young to write symphonies. And the guy says, but you were writing them when you were 10 years old. And Mozart says, yes, he says, but I wasn't asking anybody else for advice how to do it. <laughs> and so, if you remind yourself of young Mozart, well, you're the man for us.
0: We will we will come up with probably a couple of people. And, uh, you know, it. it's, it's uh, I've known people over the years. Uh, I've been in the job before. I mean, in 1969, I wound up my partnership, and I had a lot of people that trusted me. And I wasn't going to just mail the money back to them uh, and, you know, say goodbye, because they, They would have been sort of adrift, most of them. And so I had the job of finding somebody to replace me. And there were three absolutely standout candidates. Any one of the three would have been a great choice. Uh, Charlie was one of them. Sandy Gottesman was one of them. And Bill Ruane was one of them. Charlie wasn't interested in having more partners. Sandy was interested in, in in individual accounts and took on the accounts of some of my partners, and they were very, very happy, and they're still happy that he did it. And Bill Ruane set up a separate mutual fund called Sequoia Fund to take care of all of the partners, uh, whether they had small amounts or not. And he did a sensational job. So I really identified three people in 1969 that were not only superior money managers, but that were also the kind that could never get you a terrible result, and that were terrific stewards of capital. Now, they were my, about my age at the time, so it was, a, it was a universe that I was familiar with. And now I have the problem that at the people I know that are anywhere close to my age, we don't want anyway. And besides, most of them are already rich. They don't care about having a job. But I have to, so I have to look into an age cohort where I don't really know lots of people. But it can be done. And like I say, we did it successfully with three people in 1969. And it was done successfully in 1979 with Lou Simpson for GEICO. And I never knew Lou Simpson before I met him down at the airport here. And I spent a few hours with him and it was clear that he was a steward of capital. He was going to get an above average result and there was no chance he was gonna get a bad result. And he's been managing money for GEICO now for 28 years, roughly. So it's, it's doable. It's a little more work than I like to do. I'm, I've been kind of spoiled, but I'll, I'll, uh, I've got a job to do on it and I'll do it.
4: Number four. Good morning. I'm Glenn Strong from Canton, Ohio. Please tell us where you stand on the global warming debate or where your managers at General Ree stand. In particular, perhaps you can give us your thoughts on the science of global warming and how serious you believe it is and whether warming is actually more harmful than helpful. Thank you.
0: Well, I believe the odds are good that it is serious. I'm not enough of a scientist. I can't say that with 100% certainty or 90% certainty, but I think that there's enough evidence uh, that it would be very foolish To say that it's 100 percent certain or 90 percent certain that it isn't a problem. And since it's, if it is a problem, it's a problem that once it manifests itself to a very significant degree, uh, it's a little too late to do something about it. In other words, you really have to build the arc uh, before the rains come in this case. I think if you make a mistake in terms of a social decision, you should, what I call, err on the side of the planet. In other words, I, you should build a margin of safety into your thinking about the future of the only planet we've got 100 years from now. So I think, it, I, I take it seriously. In terms of our own businesses, you mentioned General Re. General Ree writes less, way less business that would be subject to the annual increments uh, in, in global warming that were, would, it, it would have an effect on their results than the reinsurance division of national indemnity, where we write the far more of the catastrophe business. It's not going to affect, you know, in any measurable degree at all, you know, excess casualty insurance, property insurance. You're thinking much more of whether it's going to produce atmospheric changes, that change materially the, the probabilities of really of, of catastrophes, both their frequency and their intensity, in my own mind, and in the minds of the people that run National National Indemnities Reinsurance Division, we we crank. We think the exposure goes up every year <clears throat> because of what's going on in the atmosphere, even though we don't understand very well what goes on in the atmosphere, and the relationship between damage caused and these causes. And the causal factors is not linear at all. I mean, it can be explosive. So if, if if temperatures in the waters of the Atlantic or something change by relatively small amounts, or what seem like small amounts, it could it could increase the expectable losses from a given hurricane season by a factor of two, three, four, or five. Uh, so we're we're plenty cautious about it. It's uh, it's not a it's not something that Keeps me up in terms of our uh, financial prospects at all at Berkshire, but it's it's something that I think every citizen ought to be very cognizant of and make a decision on, Charlie.
3: Well, uh, of course, carbon dioxide is what plants eat, and uh, and so and generally speaking, I think it's a little more comfortable to to have it a little warmer instead of a little colder. Uh, <laughs>
0: I hope you don't get a chance to test that after death, Charlie. It
3: isn't (laughs) as though there's a a vast flood of people trying to move to North Dakota from Southern California. And and so you're talking about dislocation. It's not at all clear to me that that net it would be worse for mankind in general to have the planet a little hotter. Uh, But the dislocations would cause agonies for a great great many places particularly those that would soon find themselves underwater
0: yeah I was going to ask you about how do you feel about the sea level being 15 or 20 feet higher
3: well that's very unfortunate but
0: <laughs> Holland
3: lives was what 25 percent of the nation below sea level with enough time and enough capital I, these things can be adjusted to I don't think it's a Utter calamity for man that threatens the whole human race, or anything like that. You know, you'd have to be a pot-smoking journalism student or something to, you
0: know,
3: to believe that.
0: We're finally unleashing him, folks. <laughs> well, we'll have we'll continue to have people in charge of insurance who are plenty worried about global warming. I promise you. But it. It, it — we don't know. We, we do know that 2004 and 2005, there was a frequency, and more particularly, there was an intensity of hurricanes that would not be expected at all by looking at the previous century. And we were spared, even though uh, we had Katrina, we were spared. Uh, what could have been a far worse case by a couple of category fives that didn't — didn't hit the, uh, the mainland. Uh, so I do not regard Katrina as being anywhere near a worst-case scenario. And like I say, I don't know whether — how much of that — I don't know whether the, the water's a half a degree or one degree Fahrenheit warmer than 30 years ago. But I don't know — and I don't know all the factors that go into hurricanes. I mean, I know that, you know, obviously the water temperature, you know, contributes to energy and all that sort of — but there could be 50 variables. All I know is, on balance, I think they're probably getting more negative for us. And I know we ought to be very careful about it. And I know that it would be crazy to write insurance in 2007 at the same rates that it was being written a few years ago in relation to catastrophes. Uh, And since we're in the catastrophe business, that is something I think about, and the people that actually write the policies think about it as well. So it's a factor with us. Five.
1: Uh, Hi. I'm John Golub from Kansas City. I have a question about the Chinese economy. Uh, Some observers have suggested that the Chinese banking system Uh, looks a little like Japan back in the 1990s. Are you concerned that China China could experience similar disruptions as Japan in the 90s? Or is China possibly, with different institutions, uh, possibly more resistant to economic disruptions?
0: I would have to say I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's a it's a it's a very interesting question. It's it's a very important question, um, but you know, I, I didn't necessarily understand what was going to happen in Japan before it happened, and my insight into Chinese banks is about zero. Uh, we've been offered chances to buy into various Chinese banks, and again, because I don't know anything about them, I pass. It's no judgment. that, that there's anything bad, it just means that that sitting in Omaha, Nebraska, not knowing what some item of loans and advances, what composes it, or anything about the real operation of the place, that I can make a decision whether it's worth X, half of X, two X, quarter of X, I just don't know. And I I really don't know the, I, I just have no notion as to the answer to your question, but maybe Charlie does.
3: Well, if you stop to think about it, all of the remarkable economic progress that we've seen in China in the last 15 years has been accompanied by practices in their government banks that would make you shudder if you compared them to normal banking standards. So everything you see in terms of progress has occurred despite, you know, the banks were almost, Doling out money for aid, as distinguished from doing normal banking, so I'd be very leery of predicting that that's sure to cause a, a huge economic collapse in in Japan in China. They they've been doing it for a long time, and and they may actually be getting better now.
0: Yeah, we've we've had our share of banking troubles in this country. I mean, it wasn't that long ago in terms of the savings and loan crisis and all kinds of things, and strong economies come through those things. So, uh, you know, if if ahead of time you'd seen all the problems with foreign loans that the commercial banks got into, all the problems with real estate loans that the savings loans got out into, you could have said, you know, it's going to be terrible for the American economy. And it did produce a lot of dislocations and all of that. But if you look at the rem- record of the American economy, it's come through all kinds of financial crises with the real output per capita Rising at a very substantial rate, just decade after decade. I don't know what will happen in China. I think it's pretty amazing in terms of the gains that have been made, uh, uh, and I think they'll. I think they'll be. I think they'll continue to be made. I don't know what will happen with the banking system, though. Number six.
1: Good morning, Warren, Warren and Charlie. My name is Frank Martin from Elkhart, Indiana. I'm a shareholder.
0: Yeah, you've written a good book, too, Frank.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Warren. I'll do my best uh, to be succinct with this question. Uh, As you know, my long suit is not brevity in the written word. Recently, I sequentially read everything that you and Charlie have written or that has been written about you since 1999, including your Help Wanted ad in the annual report, which sought not a Ted Williams, but the consummate defensive player, and your forcefully worded quotations in last Monday's Wall Street Journal. When contemplating the chronology, I sensed a gradual but unmistakable sea change in your perspective on the investment environment for marketable securities. The intensification of your preoccupation with managing risk is conspicuous by its absence among the other biggest players at the margin, hedge funds, private equity, mutual funds, who are shamefully mute both about what are likely to be anemic prospective returns, and the unconscionable risks assumed to achieve them, all the while charging a king's ransom for such low-value-added services. When I give free rein to my intuition, the post-1999 Warren Buffett reminds me of the worry Warren Buffett of post-1969, back then when Berkshire was a small fraction of its current size, you spoke of the difficulty in playing a game you did not understand, that there was little margin of safety in the equity markets in general. You weren't forecasting what in its own time became the bear market of 73-74 but you were surely intuitively aware of what Greenspan years later has repeatedly warned, the inevitable day of reckoning that follows long periods of low equity risk premium. Imagine yourself, if you are willing, cast overnight into a new role with a clean slate as head of the investment committee of a $10 billion pension fund. Today, would your decisions reflect the same risk-averse mindset that dominated your behavior in the post-1969 period, and might you anticipate that following all of this might appear opportunities that were as mouthwatering as appeared in 73 74 please explain and i hope charlie will weigh in on the subject as well thank you
0: yeah frank when i when i close up the partnership if i'd had a endowment fund to run then the prospective return and actually i wrote this in a letter to my partners that i'd be glad to send you a copy of the prospective return Uh, And I was looking at them as individuals on an after-tax basis. was about the same, I felt, from equities and from municipal bonds over the next decade. And it turned out to be more or less the case. Um, I would say that I I do not regard that as being the same situation now. If I were managing a very large endowment fund, for one thing, it would either be 100 percent in stocks or 100 percent in Long bonds are 100% in short-term bonds. I mean, I don't, I don't believe in layering things and saying I'm going to have 60% of this and 30% of that. Why do I have the 30% if I think the 60% makes more sense? So, And if you told me I had to invest the fund for 20 years and I had a choice between buying the index, the 500, or a 20-year bond, you know, I would buy stocks. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean they won't go down a lot, but if you, I would, I would rather have an equity investment. I wouldn't rather have an equity investment where I paid a ton of money to somebody else that took my stock return down dramatically. But simply buying an index fund for 20 years of equities, or buying a 20-year bond, I would, I would, it would not, it would not be a close decision with me. I would, uh, I would buy the equities. I'd rather buy them cheaper. You know, but I'd rather buy the bond with a bigger yield, too. But in terms of what's offered to me today, that's the way I would come down. Charlie?
3: Yeah, I don't think that was the answer that was expected. But that's the answer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that doesn't have a thing to do with where we think stocks — or we don't think at all. But where stocks could be or bonds could be we, — we don't have the faintest idea where the S&P will be in three years or where the long-term bond will be in three years. But we do know which we would rather own on a 20-year basis.
3: We we'd, we'd also expect that the current scene will cause some real disruption Yeah, but not too many years ahead.
0: That's true, but if you go back 100 years, you could almost say that you know, at almost any period, and, and you will get disruptions from time to time. And it's very nice if you have a lot of cash then and you have the guts to to do something with it. But predicting them or waiting around for them, that sort of thing is not our game. And, I mean, we bought $5 billion worth of of equities in the first quarter or something like that. And, you know, we don't think they're anything like — well, they're not — it'd be a joke to even compare them to 1974 or a whole bunch of other periods. But we decided we would rather have them than cash, or we would rather have them than sit around and hope that things get a lot cheaper. We don't spend a lot of time doing that. Uh, it, 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 you, can, you can freeze yourself out indefinitely. So anytime we find something in, what we think is intelligent to do, we just do it. And we hope we can do it big. Number seven. My name is
2: Nathan Narousis from Vancouver, Canada. Mr. Buffett, Mr. Munger, My question concerns your previous silver bullion investment. I'm curious to hear more about why you sold when you did. More specifically, whether you sold your bullion to the organizers of the silver exchange-traded fund in return for cash plus perhaps important non-cash consideration in order to keep silver markets from either rising or falling sharply. Thank you very much for anything you would care to share with us.
0: I'm not sure who we sold it to, but whoever we sold it to was a lot smarter than I was. Uh, I uh, I bought it too early. I sold it too early. Other than that, it was a perfect trade. I couldn't have done it. Charlie, do you have anything to add? Charlie had nothing to do with the silver decision, so... so uh, I that think, one falls entirely on me.
3: <laughs> I think we've demonstrated how much we know about
0: silver. very yeah. <laughs> fact you ask us a question on silver flatters us because nobody asks us about silver anymore. <laughs> but we'll, we'll come up with something else at some point. With the, you know, the, uh, there, uh, the, the last part of your question, there, there was a s- small implication, I think, of perhaps a silver conspiracy or conspiracy... We, we've, As soon as we started — it got known that we bought silver, we started getting all these letters in the mail from people who had all these different theories about about the fact that uh, that hedging was was killing things or these kind of traders were doing something. In the end, silver responds to supply and demand, just like oil supply responds to supply and demand. Oil is — the price of oil at 60 or $65 is not a product of a bunch of oil Executives conspiring or anything of the sort. It's supply and demand on a huge commodity. Silver is a small commodity, but on any kind of commodity like that, supply and demand is what determines prices over time. Although the Hunt brothers, I must admit, for a short period there, in a few years, managed to change the equation and they forever wished they hadn't. Uh, Number eight.
7: Hello, Mr. Buffett. Eben Pagan,
0: Santa Monica, California.
7: You seem amazing at keeping your composure in tough situations. I would be very interested to know what your thought process was when you were in that incredibly stressful situation. You knew the world was watching, and you went head-to-head with LeBron James.
0: The game was rigged. <laughs> he, was, he was the one that had a problem. <laughs>
7: What, what I'd really like to know is uh, I'm a real big fan of you and Mr. Gates and your philosophy of channeling all the value you've created back into the world. And uh, I have a suc- successful business and uh, I'd like to do the same, but maybe in 20 or 30 or 40 years. And with a to- time horizon like that, I'd love to know what advice you'd give someone like me.
0: Well, there's nothing wrong with your time horizon, in my view. As long as you're going — as long as you plan to give it back, uh, I mean, A, the decision is yours entirely anyway, whether you want to do it. But assuming you want to give it back, uh, or give it to society in some way, um, if you're compounding your money at a rate uh, greater than people generally do, you are, in effect, an endowment fund for society. And, and, you know, all kinds of organizations — in the uh, nonprofit area have endowment funds, and they think it's wise to have it. And they do that in order to get standard returns, usually. And if you can compound it more and you're going to give it back later on, let somebody else take care of current giving, and you can take care of giving in 20 or 30 years. Uh, but you know, I regard that as a personal decision. I always felt that I would compound money at a rate uh, higher than average. And it would have been foolish to uh, give away a significant portion of my capital. So somebody would spend it within, you know, months uh, when there could be a really much larger amount later on. And uh, on the other hand, the time had come, I really thought my my wife would be doing that. And when that didn't work out, uh, the time had come to do something with it. And fortunately, I had some great options available. And I get to keep on doing what I love doing. And I let some of my farm out all the work. But, you know, when my... When my wife had a baby we hired an obstetrician i didn't try and do it myself i mean when a, when a tooth hurts you know i i don't have charlie fix it i i go to a dentist so when i had money to go give away i i believe in in turning it over to people who are and i've got five different organizations including my three kids and i believe in turning it over to people who are energized working hard at it smart you know doing it with their own money the whole thing And uh, I get to keep doing what I like doing. So as far as I'm concerned, I haven't given away a penny. Charlie?
3: Well, I think it's wonderful for the shareholders that somebody else is giving away the money. (laughs) I tell you, if all Warren wanted to talk about was interfacing with applicants for donations, we would have a different life. (laughs) And we wouldn't be very well adapted to it either.
0: No, actually, on the smaller ones, I send them all to my sister, Doris, and she does a great job with it and enjoys it, spends lots of time on it, good at it. And uh, I'm glad she does it, and I don't. Uh, but it's — you know, and the truth is I haven't given away anything. as a practical matter of- if I want, you know. There's no way I can, I can sleep better, I can eat better. Other people might think I could eat better, but I, I, they, they, there's, I, I haven't given up anything. Now, if you think about it, you know, Somebody that gives up having an evening out, somebody that, you know, gives up their time working on something, somebody that doesn't take their kids to Disneyland this year because they, you know, they've given the money instead to their church. I mean, those people are changing their lives in some way what they give. I haven't changed my life at all. I don't want to change my life. I'm having a lot of fun doing what I do. And, you know, it's just a bunch of stock certificates that one way or another, they're going to go someplace. And what I really want to do is keep doing what I enjoy doing and feel that, The claim checks that I uh, accumulate—that comes about for this—are going to get used effectively for the same general purposes that I would want to use them for, if I really had the energy and the interest in 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 doing the job myself. Um, But somebody else can keep doing the work. Number nine. Hi, I'm Eric Schlein from Larchmont,
8: New York. My question is uh, directed at Mr. Buffett. Mr. Buffett, you claim uh, you can do 50% a year. If you had to start over with a small portfolio, would you still be doing buy and hold, buying quality companies at a good price? Or would you be doing arbitrage and really getting down to the nitty-gritty Benjamin Graham cigar butts that you did in uh,
0: the Buffett partnership? Yeah, if I were working with a very small sum, uh, and you should all hope I'm not, if I were working with a very small sum, I would be doing entirely — almost entirely different things than, than I do. I mean, there, there's — your universe expands. I mean, if you're looking, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of times as many of options to think about if you're, if you're investing $10,000 than if you're investing $100 billion. And obviously, if you have that many — got all the options you got with $100 billion, except buying entire businesses. And you've got all of these other options. So you can earn very high returns with very small amounts of money. And it will always be such. I don't mean that everybody can do it, but if if you know something about values and investments, you will find opportunities with small sums. And it will not be with the portfolio that Berkshire itself owns. We can't earn, we cannot earn phenomenal returns putting Three billion, four billion, five billion in a, in a stock. It, it won't work that way. It won't even come close to working that way. But if Charlie uh, or I were in a position of working uh, with a million dollars or $500,000 or two million, we would find little things here and there, and it wouldn't always be stocks, uh, where we would earn very high returns on capital. Uh, Charlie?
3: Yeah, but it's. There's no point in our thinking about that now.
0: (laughs) But he's thinking about it, Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll take one more and then we will go to lunch and then we'll, after that, we'll come back in about that. So we'll go to number 10 now. Is the microphone open on there on 10?
3: Hello? Hello?
0: We have a problem here. here.
8: Warren, Charlie, I have a question. What's your opinion regarding the subprime market relative to the financial markets?
3: We can't hear that. We can't hear that.
1: What's your opinion
8: regarding the subprime market relative to the financial market? Sorry, my name is Calvin Chang. I'm from New York.
0: Well, you know, the subprime market encouraged by both lenders, intermediaries, and borrowers themselves has resulted in a lot of people buying a lot of houses that they really didn't want to own or that they can't make payments on for once the normal payments were required. And the people, the institutions, in some cases the intermediaries, are going to suffer in various degrees. Now, the question is whether it spills over and starts affecting the general economy to a big degree. And I would — my guess would be — it's quite severe some places, but my guess would be that if unemployment doesn't rise significantly uh, and interest rates don't move up dramatically, that it will be a — uh, it would be a very big problem for those involved, and some people are very involved, some institutions are very involved. But I don't see it — I think it's unlikely that that factor alone triggers anything of a massive nature in, in, in the general economy. I think it — you know, I've looked at several financial institutions. I've looked at their 10 Qs and 10 Ks, and I've seen that a very high percentage of the loans they made in the last few years allowed people to make very tiny payments on the mortgages, but of course, those subnormal payments increased principal so that they had to make above average payments later on at some point. And I think that's dumb lending and I think it's dumb borrowing uh, because somebody that can only make 20 or 30 percent of their normal mortgage payments the first year is very unlikely to be able to make 110% of their normal mortgage payments a few years later. Those people and those institutions were largely betting on the fact that house prices would just keep going up, and it really didn't make any difference whether they could make the payments. And that worked for a while until it didn't work. And when it doesn't work, you have an abnormal supply of housing coming on the market, similar to what happened in manufactured housing the business we're in six or seven years ago, And that changes the whole equation. From people on the demand side, you no longer have people thinking they're buying something that's bound to go up, and then you have the supply coming on from the people who were anticipating that before and really don't want to own the asset unless it's going to go up. So you'll see plenty of misery in that field. You've already seen some. And uh, I don't think think it's going to be any huge anchor to the economy. Charlie?
3: Yeah, a lot of what went on was a combination of sin and folly. And a lot of it happened because the accountants allowed the lending institutions to show profits on loans where nobody in his right mind would have showed any profit until the loan had matured into a better condition. And once again, if the accountants lay down on their basic job, why, huge excess and folly is going to come inevitably, and and that happened here, The the national experience with low-interest starter home loans to what I would call the deserving poor has been very good. But the minute you pay a bunch of people high commissions to make loans to the undeserving poor or the overstretched rich, uh, you can get loan losses that are staggering. And I don't see how the people did it and still shaved in the morning. Because looking back at them was a face that was evil and stupid. Yeah.
0: You you've seen some very interesting figures in the last few months on the number, on the percentage of loans where people didn't even make the first or second payment. And there's really, that shouldn't happen. That happened, incidentally, you had a you had a prelude to this in the manufactured housing industry. I mean, in the late 1990s, uh, and securitization uh, accentuated the problem, because once you had somebody in Grand Island, Nebraska, selling a mobile home or manufactured home to to someone, and they needed a three thousand dollar down payment, and the and the, and the salesman was going to get a six thousand dollar commission believe me, you start getting some very strange things going on. Now, if the person doing that had to borrow the money in Grand Island, the chances are the local banker would have seen what was happening and said, you know, we don't want any of this where the salesman fakes the down payment and all that. But once you just package those things and securitize them so they get sold through major investment banking houses and sliced up in various tranches and so on, you know, the old, the discipline leaves the system. And... Securitization really accentuates that, and we have had that in subprime loans just as we had it in manufactured housing six or seven years ago. And like I say, that has not all worked its way through the system, but i don't I don't think it's going to cause huge troubles. Now we do see certain areas of the country where it will be at least a couple of years before real estate recovers. I mean the overhang is huge compared to. Normal monthly volume in certain in certain sections and and the people that were there are going to get flipped, but in a different way. Um, with that, let's come back at 12:45, uh, and we'll go then until three. And at 3:15, we'll have the regular meeting. And I'll see you a little later. Thanks. <laughs>